1: The following presentation is brought to you by The Mutual Network. Better living through audio. The following audio drama is rated
2: PG for parental guidance recommended.
3: It was, as far as I can ascertain, in August of the year 1812 that a post-chaise drew up before the door of Asleby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red-brick house built in the reign of Anne. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick, white woodwork. There were wings to right and left, and they plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by an ornamental cupola with a gilded vein. It was altogether... A pleasant impression. That was conveyed to the mind of the boy who was standing in the porch, waiting for the door to open to him.
1: Is that him? Is that the boy? Yes, sir. And all the way from Warwickshire, too. (laughs) Fetch the poor lad in, Parks.
2: I must ask you again, sir,
1: if this is, after all,
2: a sound idea. A sound idea? What? Bringing such a boy into this house, sir. He's an orphan. We don't know him. Who could say what kind
1: of trouble he might cause for you? Why, Parks. The boy's a relation. He's my cousin, twice removed. Was I to leave him in that asylum in Warwickshire, eh? No, sir, but... What's done is done, Parks, and we must make the best of it. Yes? Now, fetch the boy in. Bring him to me in my study.
3: Mr. Jebediah Abney, the owner and chief resident of Azzerby Hall tall, the thin, the austere, was inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he forgot his order to Parks and darted out of the study, rubbing his hands with delight.
1: How are you, my boy? How are you? I don't suppose you remember me, eh? No, sir. Why, I'm your cousin. Your cousin Jedediah. Jedediah Abney. I'm
4: pleased to make your acquaintance, sir. My name is Stephen Elliott.
1: Oh, splendid lad. Such nice manners they teach you up in Warwickshire, eh? (laughs) So, how old are you? That is, you're not too much tired, I hope, by your journey to eat your supper?
4: Thank you, sir. No, I'm pretty well.
1: That's a good lad. And how old are you, my boy?
4: I'm 12 years old next birthday, sir.
1: And when is your birthday, my dear boy? 31st of October, eh? That's well. That's very well. Nearly two months hence, isn't it? I like... (laughs) I like to get these things jotted down in my book. Sure as twelve, are you? Certain?
4: Yes, quite sure, sir. Well,
1: well, take him to Mrs. Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, supper, whatever it is. Yes,
2: sir. Will you come with me, Master Stephen...
3: Mrs Bunch was the most comfortable and human person which Stephen had yet met at Asby Hall. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour and great friends they remained. I was born right here in the neighbourhood, Master Stephen, and I've worked for Mr Abney 20 years. Now, if anybody knows the ins and outs of this district and especially this house, it's me. So... You feel free to ask me anything, dear. The boy took this offer to heart as time went by. Certainly, there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens within the which the adventurous Stephen was anxious to have explained to him.
4: Who built the temple at the end of the lower walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at a table with a skull under his hand?
3: These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Mrs. Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory.
4: Is Mr. Ardney a good man, and
3: will he go to heaven? Good? Oh, bless the child! (laughs) Oh, yeah, Master's as kind a soul as ever, I see. (laughs) Didn't I never tell you of the little boy as he took in out of the street, as you might say, this seven years back? And the little girl, two years after I first come here.
4: Now, do tell me all about them, Mrs Bunch, now, this minute.
3: Well, the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about... Yeah, I know. Mister Abney brought her back with him from his walk one day and give orders to Missus Ellis, as was housekeeper then, as she should be took every care with. And the poor child hadn't no one belonging to her. Hmm? No, she told me so her own self. And yeah, and here she lived with us a matter of three weeks, it might be. And then whether she were something of a gypsy in her blood or whatnot, but. How oh, well, a one morning she got out of her bed before any of us had opened eye, and neither track nor yet trace of her have I set eyes on since. Mm. Her master was wonderful put about and had all the ponds dragged, but it's oh, my belief she was had away with by them gypsies. They was singing round the house for as much as an hour the night she went, and Parks, well, he declare, as he heard them a-calling in the woods all that afternoon... Mm. dear dear a hot child she was so silent in her ways and all but I was wonderful taken with her so domesticated she was surprising and what about the little boy? oh that poor boy (laughs) he were a foreigner Giovanni he called himself. And he came a-tweaking his hurdy-gurdy round and about the drive one winter day, and master had him in that minute. And asked all about where he came from, how old he was, how he'd made his way, where was his relatives, all as kind as heart could wish. But well, I went the same way with him. They were a unruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose. He it was off one fine morning, just the same as the girl. Yeah, why he went and what he done was our question for as much as a year after. Mm, yeah.
4: Is that his hurdy gurdy on the high shelf? Oh, I. Mm. Why didn't he take it with him?
1: Now, Stephen, how much do you know about the sciences?
4: The sciences, sir? Yes.
1: Mathematics, astronomy, spontaneous generation, chemistry, alchemy?
4: Nothing at all, sir. Oh, my dear boy, how dreadful.
1: Well, we shall endeavor to instill in you some scientific education. <clears throat> now then, what do you know about religion? <sighs>
4: I know that I'm a sinner and that only the blood of Jesus Christ can save me from eternal damnation.
1: (coughs) Yes, 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 yes. Well, it seems as if you've been getting some religious upbringing. Anything else? Sir? Any other religions? Have you? Are there
4: other religions, sir?
1: There are tens of thousands of other religions, my boy, most of which are hundreds of centuries older than Christianity. Here, lad, here. See these books? Gaze at the titles. Books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras, the Neoplatonists. Why, I'll have you know that the Cambridge professor of Greek once remarked that no one knew more about the religious beliefs of the later pagans than I. Yes, sir. I just wish there was enough time to teach you these things.
4: Why wouldn't there be, sir?
1: Eh? <coughs> uh, what, what's that you've brought in here?
4: It's a hurdy-gurdy, sir. Mrs. Bunch said I could have it. I've been trying to teach myself how to play.
1: Hurdy-gurdy, eh? Um, yes, well, take it outside, my boy. There's a good lad.
3: Master Stephen, what a horrid dream you had! I haven't told you everything yet. Oh, well, wait till I sit down.
4: Mm. It was so real to me. I was walking to the end of the passage outside my bedroom, where the old bathroom is. The door was locked, as it is in real life, and I found myself looking through the glazed window in the upper half of the door. The moon was shining through the outside window and I could make out a figure which lay in the bath. And a second figure pushed atop a short stool alongside the bath. The skin of both was the colour of lead. They were very thin and pathetic. Their lips were stretched into a dreadful smile, and their hands were pressed tightly over their hearts. As I looked in, I could hear a distant moan coming from their lips. And then...
3: Oh. And then...
4: And then, the eyes opened and they both looked at me. Oh, oh, mercy. One was a boy, about my age. The other a girl, a little older. Their smiles grew wider and more hideous. They each put a forefinger to their lips as if signaling me to be quiet. They removed their other hands from their chests and showed me their empty rib cages. what? They had no hearts. They'd been removed. Oh, my word. What happened next? Well, then... Then I awoke. Oh, no. You poor dear. In bed. No. The sight of those two children with their empty chest forced me to step back in shock, and I awoke to find myself actually standing in the passage outside the bathroom.
3: Oh, my. Oh, 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 oh. And
4: I couldn't help myself. I stepped up to the little glazed window and looked through again, <gasps> and there was nothing there. Nobody, I mean.
3: Just as it should be, Master Stephen. Well... I must make my way upstairs later and replace the little muslin curtain that used to hang over that little window. (laughs) Have you told the master about your dream? Yes,
4: I told him at breakfast. He said he was greatly interested and made many notes in his book. Mrs Bunch?
3: Yes, Master Stephen?
4: I think think I've seen those two before. The boy and the girl. Eh? Where? In different places. I was walking along a path that led into the little copse of trees and heard a sound, like someone whispering, Hi. I turned in the direction of the sound and saw two figures running away. I chased after them, but they disappeared. It's me. Another time, Mr. Arbney was showing me some unusual plants he'd been growing in a little plot behind the left wing. I heard that same sound, but high up. I looked and saw two faces in the window.
3: Oh! My dear, now, don't tell me any more about it. Who do you think they are, Mrs. Bunch? Shh, shh, shh. Oh, shh, shh.
4: And why did they both have such long fingernails?
1: Samhain is coming, Stephen. Samhain, this time of year has always been considered a critical time for the young by the ancients.
4: What is so when, Mr. Albany?
1: It's the end of summer, the time of harvest, the beginning of the black part of the year. And, of course, it coincides exactly with your birthday, October 31st. You, my good lad, will do well to take care of yourself. Shut your bedroom window at night and read the valuable remarks that Censorinus wrote on the subject.
3: Two incidents occurred about this time that made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that he had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream he'd had. The second was on the following evening. Mrs Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. Gracious me, Master Stephen, how'd you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way? look here, sir, what trouble you do give to poor servants that must darn and mend after you. There was indeed a most destructive and apparently wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment, which would undoubtedly require a skilful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long parallel slits about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before.
4: But Mrs Bunch, they are just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them.
3: Mrs Bunch gazed at him, open-mouthed, "'then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room "'and was heard making her way upstairs. "'In a few minutes she came down. "'Well, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me "'how the marks and the scratches gonna come there, hmm? "'Too high up for any cat or dog to have made them, much less a rat. Oh, "'For all the world, like a Chinaman's fingernails, "'as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us of when we was girls together.' <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't say nothing to Master, though. Hmm? Not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear. And, uh, well, just turn the key of the door when you go to your bed, won't you? I always do, Mrs Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Oh, that's a good child. Always say your prayers and then no one can't hurt you. <laughs> All right, my dear, let me get back to my mending so you can get to bed at a decent hour. Good evening, Mr Parks. What brings you to my pantry?
2: <laughs> Master may get up his own wine if he likes of an evening. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Mrs Bunch. I don't know what it may be. <laughs> Very like it's the rats or the wind got into the cellars. But I'm not so young as I was, and I can't go through it as I have done.
3: Well, Mr. Parks, you know it is a surprising place for the rats, is Asby hall.
2: I'm not denying that, Mrs. Bunch. And to be sure, many a time I have heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I've never laid no confidence in that before. But tonight, if if i demeaned myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin could pretty much have heard what they was saying.
3: Oh, there, Mr Parks, I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar indeed.
2: (laughs) Well, Mrs Bunch, I have no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bend and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute.
3: What nonsense, you do talk, Mister Parks. Not fit for children to listen to. Hmm? Ah, you'll be frightening Master Stephen. They're out of his wits. What,
2: Master Stephen? Oh, I didn't see him before. Uh, <clears throat> Master Stephen knows knows well enough when when I'm a playing a joke with you, Missus Bunch. i <laughs> i returned return to my quarters. Good night.
4: But Mr. Parks, what did the voices sound like? Could you make out any words? Did you see anything? Mr. Parks? Mr. Parks?
3: We have now arrived at October 31st, 1812. It was Sawen and the boys' twelfth birthday. It was also a day of curious experiences for Stephen. A windy, noisy, restless day. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might bring them once again into living world. After luncheon that day, Mr. Abney said...
1: (coughs) Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time, and I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which it is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs. Bunch, nor to anyone else in the house. And you had better go to your room at the usual time.
4: Eleven o'clock? Oh, yes, Mr. Abney. I shall be happy to meet you at that time. something. What time is it? Maybe it's time to go down and see Mr. Abney. Ten o'clock. I've got an hour. Oh, what is that noise? Is it coming from out on the ground? I thought maybe an owl, or water bird, but no. Are they coming near? The sound seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Eh? Oh, now I can't hear them. No, whatever it was, it's gone. If only it wasn't so infernally dark out there. Who's behind a cloud? Ah, here it comes. <gasps> Who's that down there, on the terrace? looks like a boy and a girl. Oh, oh no, no, it's it's the two I
3: saw in my dream. The boy and the girl stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Whilst the girl stood still, half smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart. The boy, a thin shape with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long, and that the light shone through them as he stood with his arms thus raised. He disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest there opened a black and gaping ring. There fell upon Stephen's brain rather than upon his ear the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of aswerby Hall all that evening. In another moment, this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexperable. Expressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. The study opened out onto the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there.
1: Ah, <laughs> Stephen, Stephen, my boy! Right on time, right on time. Come in, come in, come in. Let me pour you some tea. Sit down, lad, there on the couch. Do You take sugar? Of course you do. (laughs) Drink up. It's a chill night. It'll warm you. Thank you, sir. Now, my boy, as I indicated earlier today, this is a very important night for you. Your twelfth birthday coinciding with Samhain. Drink your tea, there's a good lad. Christianity sought to dull the effect of Samhain by calling it All Hallows' Eve, don't you see? (laughs) Now, allow me to explain why I wanted to see you tonight. It was a belief, very strongly and generally held by the ancients, That by enacting certain processes, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in man may be attained. That, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures, a man may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. (sighs) Do you understand, Stephen?
4: Not exactly, sir. (sighs) I'm so tired. What did you... Eh?
1: (laughs) No matter. It is recorded of Simon Margus that he was able to fly in the air to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased, by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered... I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of twenty-one years. To the testing of the truth of this receipt, I have devoted the greater part of the last two decades, the first step "'I affected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, "'a girl of gypsy extraction, on October 30th, 1792, "'the second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad "'named Giovanni Paoli. "'On the night of October 31st, 1805, "'the final victim, to employ a word repugnant "'in the highest degree to my feelings, "'must be you, my cousin Stephen Elliot. Your day must be today, October 31st, 1812. Now, don't be afraid, Stephen. Are you afraid? Oh, you've dropped off, haven't you? (laughs) (laughs) The best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the subject while he still lives, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle the ashes with about a pint of some red wine. "'preferably port. "'The remains of the first two subjects "'were not difficult to conceal. "'A disused bathroom for one, "'a wine cellar for the other. (laughs) "'Some annoyance may be experienced "'from the psychic portion of the subjects "'which popular language dignifies "'with the name of ghosts. (laughs) "'Ha! "'But the man of philosophic temperament, "'yes, will not attach importance "'to the feeble efforts of these beings.' To wreak their vengeance on him. <laughs> I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the extended existence which my experiment, if successful, will confer upon me. Not only placing me beyond the reach of so-called human justice, but eliminating to a great extent the prospect of death itself. Now, my boy. <clears throat> I feel the quiet beating of your heart. I have grown quite fond of you in the short time you have been with us. Yes, I have. But I have a feeling that you would understand and accept what I am about to do. Eh? (laughs) (sighs) What's that? Who the devil are you two? What do you want? No, stay back. What are you doing? No, it can't be. You... And you? Get back! Get away from me! Get out! No! 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 <coughs>
3: <coughs> Stephen was found next morning asleep on the couch in the study. He told Mr. Parks that he could not remember anything that had happened the previous evening. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound, exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands and the long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. The window of the study was open and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliot, after he grew old enough to understand to a very different conclusion.
1: You've been listening to Lost Hearts by M.R. James. It starred Austin Mosher as Stephen, Pete Lutz as Mr. Abney, Sarah Golding as Mrs. Bunch and the narrator, and Jason D. Johnson as Mr. Parks. Tom Rory Parsons was the producer, composer, director, and sound designer. Thanks to Rachel Peebles for creating the fantastic cover art and special thanks to Austin's father, Scott Mosher. This is C.K. Standard speaking. Lost Hearts by M.R. James was originally published in 1895 and was adapted specially for this production by Pete Lutz.
0: zealots called Spire City. Tall, built to reach heaven and step foot on God's front porch. As much as I've come to know of this city, some might even try to kick the pearly gates in. But you know, labor strikes and all that, makes for poor steel manufacturing. That leads me to where we find ourselves. The lower rings of the Spire City are filled with tall buildings like oil-dripped mountains pressed together so the valleys are tight and sweaty with acrid metallic steam hissing up from the street grates and the occasional whiff of food or of a garden nearby if you're lucky enough to be standing but a few yards away from them. The sun hardly reaches us unless it's directly above and even then the crisscrossing monorail lines and hovercraft constantly blot out of the light. It's funny. I always imagined God being able to pierce any dark but it seems he respects a man's choice if he holds up a hand to forbear. And here, we begin our tale.